Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. This is hour two of Mornings with Carmen on Tuesday, the 12th of October. If you missed hour one, I encourage you to go and listen to it as a podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. It's a good way to not only get up to speed on what's going on around the world, but to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of this day as we seek to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and to do so in ways that honor Jesus. All right, so when was uh, the last time you sent a letter? So I got thinking about this because of a recent CBS uh, poll and survey that, uh, that reveals that 35% of Americans, 35% of adult Americans said they haven't sent nor received a personal letter in a, more than a decade. Uh, a half, let's see, the percentages are essentially the same. Okay, so for the last 12 months, um. A huge percentage of people have not sent nor received a personal letter. But 35% say they haven't sent nor received a personal letter, written a personal letter, or received a personal letter um, in five years. And and uh, and another huge percentage, which I don't have in right in front of me right now, uh, say it's been more than a decade. I just want you to think about that for just a minute. Okay, so when was the last time you sent a genuinely personal letter, like you got some stationery out or even just the back of a blank sheet of paper and um, and you wrote a letter, a handwritten letter, and then you folded it up and you put it in an envelope that you wrote an address on and you put a, a return address on it and a stamp and you mailed it. Okay, just think about that for just a moment, because you know, although the statistics might be like astonishing, uh, my guess is there's a very, very high percentage of us who haven't done it either, have not sent a letter, a real letter, a personal letter in the last five or even 10 years. Why bring this up? So I want you to consider the letters, the personal letters that you have read in the last five to 10 years. Have you read the first or the second letter to the Thessalonians? Have you read the letter to the Christians at Galatia? Have you read the first, well, what are called the first and second letters to uh, the Christians at Corinth, which may or may not actually be the first and the second letters in an ongoing correspondence that Paul was having with the people of that church? Have you read? Have you received? Have you opened? Have you reflected upon the letter to the Philippians? How about, how about the letter to Philemon? How about what we call the Book of Romans, which is a letter? It's a long letter, but it's a letter to the Christians at Rome, fellow saints. Have you read the letters that God has sent? All right, so that is my encouragement today. Um, I love the letters of Peter, James, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the letters to 
the churches at the opening of Revelation? Have you read? Have you read your mail? All right. That's my encouragement today. That is also the where in the word are you. Next up, our friend Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association with a range of headlines, including one more thing to worry about here in America, the West Nile virus. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Uh, just a little shout out here to Jacqueline, um, who says she loves writing letters and she writes a number of personal letters every month. She doesn't receive very many and she loves reading through the New Testament letters as well. Um, Jacqueline, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. You have no idea how those letters that you're writing might be touching the hearts and uh, and the lives of the people to whom you're sending them. You also have no idea how generations from now those letters might um redound in some way to God's glory and the edification of people. So keep writing those letters. Um, All right, Brett Nix. Hey, welcome back. Good to have you, man. Hey, happy Tuesday, Carmen. Glad to be back. Happy Tuesday. Okay, let's start with there are a lot of mosquitoes where I live right now. I can hardly wait for the first frost to kill them off. It was a really, really wet spring and then really exceptionally wet summer. A lot of standing water that's not normally standing around tons of mosquitoes and come to find out the West Nile virus is now here in the United States of America. Talk with us about this. Yeah, boy, I tell you, mosquitoes have been around for a long time. What's fascinating is West Nile's been here and it kind of comes in waves. And as you stated, Mm. this year is a particularly wet one. And if we look across the country, whether it be because of the amount of rainfall, the humidity, now here most recently, a lot of the tropical storms that have just decided to provide just deluge of water, especially in the south and other areas, Well, what we find is, as you stated, standing water is a perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes. And the particular type of mosquito that uh, is known around the West Nile virus, the flavivirus um, area, is one of these things that, well, guess what? If it's here, you're going to find the symptoms. What do you expect? It's the typical things. The dawn and the dusk periods of the day is when the mosquito is most active. And so as with anyone around the world who's used to protecting yourself against malaria and yellow fever – The same things hold true with the West Nile virus. And so if you have a bite from a mosquito that is infected with the West Nile virus, uh, you may get symptoms of fever, confusion, convulsions, muscle weakness, numbness. These are the worst case situations. But the vast majority of people don't even know they have it. You get it. You get infected by the mosquito. You may have a little bit of aches and pains. Uh, You may not have any symptoms. Um, But it's for those, again, that are at risk, those who have suppressed immune systems, typically those extremes of age, the young and the very old. Um, They can become infected, and when they do, again, they'll have these types of symptoms. And so part of it, as you state, more than anything else, is it's awareness. It's, hey, do we have a lot of issues with mosquitoes in this area right now? And when you look about what the CDC is showing, you can look pretty much across the U.S., and they are showing everything from the state of Washington. Most of the cases really are down in in, uh, in the state of Arizona, New Mexico, California, Colorado. But there's distribution across the U.S., and I just want to make sure that people are aware this isn't new. This is something we've had before. And oh my goodness, if we look at history, we go back to the 1700s. We had yellow fever in the U.S., which we don't have anymore because of the mosquitoes that had been brought over with all of the, the immigration to the U.S. back in that era. And how did we 
mitigate and eradicate most of these issues? Well, it was water maintenance. It was the standing water areas. It was navigating the swamps. Uh, again, plus and minus there environmentally, keeping that in mind. But most importantly for people, protection is everything. Um, one of the things that you mentioned there was malaria. And um, I'm aware that um, there's there's the development, am I right here, about uh, a new malaria vaccine? Yeah, you know, it's fascinating that you bring that up. Um, you know, malaria is, is very rare. We have about 20,000 cases in the U.S. each year, and those are from travelers. Those are not ones that uh, uh, obtain malaria in the U.S. It doesn't exist here. But around the globe, you're looking at roughly about two, almost 250 million cases of malaria each year in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, places like Tanzania and Kenya and Uganda really have the brunt of the number of cases on an annual basis. And over the last year and a half, the WHO and others have been working on a vaccine uh, that they have been using in that area specifically to go ahead and try to eradicate uh, the process around malaria. And what's fascinating about this is the report in that area. Keep in mind, on an annual basis, almost 400 to 500,000 people die of malaria a mosquito-borne illness, and most of them get a malaria that affects the brain, cerebral malaria. It becomes problematic and obviously succumbs to death. What they're finding with this vaccine, and it's similar to your measles, mumps, and rubella, it's a series of shots that you get at a very young age going forward, um, decreases substantially the numbers of deaths associated with it, the severity of illness that's associated with it, uh, upwards of 30 to 40 percent. And so it's very, very positive. Uh, as stated before, the studies have been going uh, now for uh, since 2019, um, and the data is looking very, very positive. And so this could be a monumental shift uh, in the underlying concerns, especially in the, in, in the, in the poorest of the poor areas there uh, with, with inherent exposures Yes, you know, people will sleep underneath uh, mosquito nets and uh, just re recognize the, the lifestyle, the environment, and the circumstances that are faced in those, in, in those areas make it very, very difficult to always protect yourself. So this is a tremendously positive opportunity that is coming forward. All right, that is really, um, that is really helpful. Um, and to the person asking um, online, uh, no, neither the West Nile virus nor malaria are communicable person to person. Correct? That is correct on the West Nile virus. The malarial piece, there's mm. um, not, a, not a person to person, but if you have an infected individual and a mosquito, uh, you know, bites that individual, that in theory, because they do take some of your blood, can then cause another transmission if that mosquito did not have uh, the virus that was inside of it. So it's, 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 not, it's not as clear, but it is not a person to person, no. And for those who remember back to past Olympics, when we were looking at the Olympics uh, down in Rio and some others, we hear things about chikungunya and about Zika. And believe it or not, we have other things in our area that are not um, commonly followed, but we have the St. Louis um, uh, encephalitis virus. We have the Eastern equine encephalitis virus. All of these things that we don't talk about routinely, they exist in the U.S., and these are all mosquito-borne vectors. And so there are other types of viruses that exist in the U.S., they're incredibly rare. Uh, but again, when we have the perfect conditions as we do right now, we see sometimes an outburst like we are seeing with the West Nile right now. And these are things that we continue to monitor. The CDC does an incredible job of advising. But again, is there something to panic about? Not in the least. It's just to be aware that when you're outside of mosquitoes, there's reasons which you're going to put on clothing if you can. If not, make sure that you avoid the dawn and dusk windows when they bite the most. And most importantly, make sure that you put on appropriate mosquito protection. 
All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix in just a moment. I'm going to ask him about some hopeful research regarding Parkinson's and dementia. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile when you think. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Brett, tell me about this um, hopeful research regarding Parkinson's and dementia. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Scientists have been doing just an incredible job of looking at the neurologic diseases that we face on a daily basis. And, you know, they spent some time recently looking at a cell that is normal as part of our brain. It's known as an astrocyte. And typically what it's known for is clearing away these toxic particles that build up in the brain. It's it's sitting there as a filter. It's sitting there to go ahead and, and navigate um, the nourishing process of the neurons, the abilities of um, the cells of our brain to go ahead and make the connections that allow our brains to think, allow us to function in the way that we do. But what they've been finding in, in, these, in studies specifically on mice is that there's a balancing act. These astrocytes do a great job of cleaning, but for some reason at some point in time, they can start releasing off these toxic fatty acids. And so they're looking at this closely to say, hey, you know, maybe there's something specific to this. We don't know necessarily what the trigger is in excess of what causes them to go from a cleaning agent to a damaging agent. But they're looking very, very specifically at this, and they believe that they're able to navigate perhaps some treatments specifically focused on these astrocytes to go ahead and keep them functioning in the positive way rather than learning in into these areas where all of a sudden they're causing injury to the neurons and specifically things that would lead into Parkinson's and dementia. These kinds of conversations um, always, I think, among Christians need to include the recognition that we live a long way from Eden. Like this is not um, the degenerative diseases that we see, the chronic issues that we face, um, they are a result. I don't want to say they're a result of particular sins in our lives, but they are the result of sin. The reality that we are broken, fallen people in broken, fallen bodies now living in a broken, fallen world a lot of generations away from uh, the perfection in which we were created in Eden. Is that fair? Absolutely. I think that's a, it's a absolutely true statement. And, and the reality of this balancing act is, you know, God created us for a temporal period. We, we are here to, you know, bring his kingdom forward in the life that we're living and recognize that even with these types of things, this may allow our brain to function uh, better for a duration, but this does not make us uh, immortal. This is not leading into that space. This is not trying to push that paradigm uh, because we, we do know is that for some reason, genetically, the way God created certain people, that astrocyte may turn on very, very early and cause very early onset dementia. This would be a way of slowing that down to go ahead and allow a higher level of function with their families and integration into life uh, and really just living life in an abundant manner. And really, it's, it's understanding that balancing act. This is not going in and changing genetic code uh, or anything along those lines. It's just trying to look specifically at, hey, when we have cells that turn on into a negative way, is there a way of slowing that process down? Very, very helpful. Um, all right. So there are a lot of people listening right now um, who deal with a chronic back pain. Um, give us uh, give us a different kind of thought related to how we might address that. Boy, you know, a chronic back pain is something that has been around for, uh, you know, decades and decades and decades. And we 
one of some of the earlier studies really occurred back in the uh, post-World War II period, talking about chronic pain uh, and navigating that. And from an annual basis, and me as an emergency physician, I see patients that have acute back pain because of injury. I see patients that have chronic back pain and have had multiple surgeries. And what we know more than anything else is there is not a single modality, a single process, a single approach that works exceedingly well for all people. And there's some recent studies that have come out uh, in, in, in uh, really over the last several months that have looked at studies that have been ongoing but building in their backing, looking at things like a mindfulness-based stress reduction. And some will call them the psychophysiologic symptom relief therapies. And these are our cognitive approaches to address the things that are physiologically real. This is not saying that the pain is all in your mind, but the recognition that for those that suffer high levels of chronic back pain, many times there is a psychophysiological process that also overlaps it. And those are areas where people become angry because of the longstanding issues. They have issues sometimes with depression, sometimes with anxiety, and what we have found in these symptomatic uh, and systematic approaches in reviewing these is that people that have longstanding back pain have a triggering process in their brain that heightens that level of pain to a degree that most of us would not understand. There's a fundamental change in the brain that even the smallest level of pain is amplified exponentially. And so their pain is very, very real. But what these studies have shown is that these mindfulness-based interventions aim to reduce the pain through Concepts of stress reductions, anytime you can lower the level of anxiety, of anger, of depression, any of these things that may be intermixed with this, it substantially brings down the pain uh, levels, number one, but also changes their pain thresholds such that their bodies tolerate and don't amplify the sensation of pain. It's quite fascinating, but to be quite honest, it is something that has been known to be true, but has not been fully embraced. All right, we, you and I um, only have like 90 seconds left, but I want you to tell people what's going on in terms of like the Cleveland Clinic um, and United Health denying transplants to unvaccinated individuals. What, what's going on in this storyline? Yeah, so, you know, transplants are tough. Understand that the transplants require fascinating processes, which is not only removing someone's organ, bringing someone else's organ from a living donor into that person. And to do so, not only complex in the sense of the surgery, but all the medications that they have to take basically suppress the immune system so there's not a point of rejection. When you look at that around vaccinations, these processes typically require all vaccinations, your typical MMR, your hepatitis series, um, your influenza vaccines. All of these are required as part of it in the background. Many times alcohol avoidance, smoking avoidance or whatnot, all to prevent the process of rejection in this thing because in a in a transplant it's an incredibly expensive surgery and incredibly complex surgery and COVID has been added in in some estates and some health systems because of the rate of mortality that if somebody gets COVID uh, and they are a immune suppressed transplant patients the rates of death are about 30 percent and so what they're saying is hey we want to give you the best possible shot possible we'd really like you to be immunized we require these other immunizations up to this point we're adding this in because if in this process of surgery and medications, you get COVID, the likelihood of death is almost a third. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of dialogue and discussion. Of course, we know we've had this conversation around COVID for a while about, is this a forced immunization? Is this a forced process? This is specific looking at the probabilities of survival for somebody who is ill enough to go down that transplant pathway. And organizations are saying, we believe that this is something that should be added to our typical vaccine routine. 
All right, you guys can visit with uh, Brett online. His website is brettnixmd.com, and you can find more uh, out about and from uh, the Christian Medical and Dental Association at cmda.org. Brett, as always, thank you so much. Carmen, great to be here. And again, happy Tuesday. And most important thing for everyone listening, begin each day with a grateful heart and remember that life is beautiful. Amen. Amen. We'll be right back. What is our unlimited autonomy or our sense of unlimited autonomy really bringing us? Is it bringing us happiness or is it just bringing us more exhausted rush and hurry? We're going to have the conversation about a spacious life with Ashley Hales up next. This is Max Locato. In the story of Esther, the Jews were three generations and more than a thousand miles removed from their days in Jerusalem. The Jews who remained in Persia chose to remain in Persia. Exile had been kind to them. All they had to do was abide by the rules and fade into the fabric of the culture. The book of Esther depicts a people who are distant from their land. Jerusalem was far away and Persia was, well, it was so relevant, so lush, so inviting. The point of the first chapter of Esther is simply this. Persia is lying to you. Do we need the same reminder? God displays His glory. God displays His goodness through the church. As we worship God, as we love our neighbors, as we cherish our families, we become billboards of God's message. We were made for this moment. Joining us today is Ashley Hales. She's talking with us today about her brand new book, A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. You may well remember her from her book, Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Also want you to check out her podcast, Finding Holy. Ashley, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. It's a delight to be with you again. Yeah, it's fun to have you as well. Okay, so I want to start with this uh, because I think that We all know the power of limits when we set them for our kids and how Mm -hmm. they can flourish within those limits. And I love the way that you talk about that. So talk about this freedom that we're designed to have within the good limits of God. Mm, Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. It's easy sometimes to look at other people and be like, they need limits, but I'm going to be unlimited. Um, You know, I'm going to keep working and hustling and hurrying because it feels like that's how we live a meaningful or productive life, by putting more things in our calendar or spreading ourselves thinly. And yet we find that even in the very beginning of Genesis, before sin entered the world, that God created the world with limits. You know, that the sun was to rule the day and the moon was to rule the night and planets had orbits and people as creatures have limits too. And I think really what we, when we get into trouble, it's because we have bypassed God's good God-given limits, you know, limits on our time, being able to rest, being able to delight in God. And instead, we try to move past those limits and achieve for ourselves the things that God has already given to us, like an identity and a name and a purpose and a calling. And so we just work harder. And if anything, right, the last several years of a global pandemic has shown us that we're limited and fragile human creatures. And maybe if we actually submitted to some of those good limits, we'd find ourselves living much more free 
actually. Yeah, with a sense of of fullness, not because, Mm -hmm. you know, the calendar is like crammed, um, but because we're genuinely like fulfilled as as opposed to just filling it up with with tons of stuff. I loved one of the things that you just said, that we spend a lot of time seeking to achieve what God has already given us. Talk a little bit more Mm -hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's beautiful as we follow the life of Christ. It really wasn't until, you know, before he started healing people or anything, he lived a very quiet, very local life um, where he was loving God and loving his neighbor. And it, you know, when he is actually welcomed into kind of this full ministry life, it's at his baptism. We hear the audible voice of God the Father that says, This is my son. I am so pleased with him. You know, listen to him. And he hasn't done anything. Um, And I think it's just really helpful for us to remember, for us too, that we have that affection when we're in Jesus of the Father on us. And it's not, you know, if we got the promotion, if our kids are excelling, you know, if we're, you know, firing on all cylinders that will actually make us feel like we are known and loved and cared for. It's actually by hiding ourselves and who God says we are rather than trying to, like, go out and earn it. Okay, that is so good. Um, I love the way that you just phrased that, that Jesus lived this very quiet, local life. I think there Mm -hmm. are, there we live in a world that says you only matter if, you know, you have a million followers on Instagram and people all (laughs) over the world know who you are and what you're wearing today. And um, (laughs) that's just not the true truth. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so hard because when the world works at this kind of breakneck speed of we have to achieve, and that's how we find identity, to like pull yourself back and say, actually, no, my identity is received first, and I'm going to work from that received identity is so countercultural. And it's it's scary. I, I will just say, like living a spacious life where we say, okay, these are the limits on my time and my attention. These are the limits on my calling, on my budget, on my body. And I'm going to press into these limits and know really that our limits are an invitation to know God. And if that's the whole point of why we're here, then, you know, our limits can lead us there, even if it pinches a little. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you got me thinking, and again, let me just remind you, we're talking with Ashley Hales. The book is A Spacious Life, Trading, Hustle, and Hurry. Oh, I got to read the rest of the subtitle. Um, For the goodness of limits. One of the things that has occurred to me in relationship to limits is time is limited. And mm-hmm. life is life is unlimited because I'm going to get, you know, I mean, I'm already living my eternal life, but life is eternal. But time and the Mm -hmm. opportunity to be in relationship with other people here and now is definitely limited. And I've been noting, Ashley, the importance of limiting some things in my own life in order that I can be with my mom and stepdad who are, you know, in their 80s and aging quickly because time there is really short. Yeah. No, I think it's just wise to remember both how quickly time passes, especially as we age. It feels like it's moving quicker and quicker. Um, But then to also exactly what you're saying is that because we have that eternal lens, we're actually able then to feel like we don't have to make every second be productive. You know, we don't have Mm -hmm. to treat our bodies like we're our iPhones that we plug in, you know, so that we can just be charged up and ready to go. But, you know, Mm -hmm. what would it look like? 
to actually receive the rest of God and to work from that rest, you know, for instance, or, you know, to receive the relationship with your mom and stepdad, you know, as short. And so to, to not feel like you're wasting or being less productive with your time, but to give yourself fully to the person at hand or the task at hand, I feel like then we'd actually have this sense of internal spaciousness growing because we're not always rushing about everywhere. Yeah, that internal spaciousness, that's where this title comes from, a spacious Mm -hmm. life, trading, hustle, and hurry for the goodness of limits. We're talking with Ashley Hales. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment. Picking up our conversation with author Ashley Hales about her brand new book, A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. One of the things that you address in here is, I mean, this image of cycling is so strong. The demands of the world between this, uh, the cycle, or you describe it as a rhythm, but it's it's such a negative rhythm that when you described it that way, I was a little (laughs) caught off because I think about finding a rhythm as a good thing. But this rhythm that I'm trapped in between production and escape, help me Mm -hmm. break that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's just so ingrained in us as North Americans that really what we need to do is we produce in order to be loved or in order to kind of say that we have worth in the world. And then we escape with Netflix or other addictions. And um, we're not actually resting at all. Um, And I think probably the the very first place to start to break some of that cycle is to, to actually prioritize rest. And so whether that means like plugging your phone in and putting down the computer or, or the TV remote at like eight o'clock at night so that you're not just focused with screens all the time, you're not using screens to push off maybe some unpleasant emotions or, or something like that. And that you're actually practicing bringing those, those hard parts of being limited to God and that you're actually choosing to sleep and to set yourself up to sleep. Um, James Brian Smith says that sleep is a declaration of trust. Um, it's, it's putting ourselves in the hand of a God who is actually unlimited and in control and realizing that our limits can be hidden in him. So even if something as simple as getting a good night's sleep or practicing a weekly Sabbath can really help reorient that production escape cycle. What would you do on a weekly Sabbath? What would you do on one if you gave yourself the like there's somebody listening right now who's like, oh, my goodness, yeah. if I could even give myself the gift of one day, not maybe yeah. I can't commit to one day a week yet. Like, what would you do yeah. with that first Sabbath rest? Mm. You know, I think a lot of times we think of Sabbath rest as uh, self-care in, in the negative sense of like, you know, we, we go to a spa and we treat ourselves and um, but really I think there's just so many more like simple and actually restorative joys and ways that we can rest. Um, I would prioritize sleep. I always encourage folks who are reading a spacious life to make a delight list. Uh, You know, what are the things that delight you now? And maybe if you're having a hard time figuring that out, like what did you delight in as a child? Um, Because I think a lot of a Sabbath rest too is receiving our identity as God's children. And so maybe it's going for a hike or playing a board game with your family, you know, things that actually 
will restore you. Turning screens off unless they're like communal screens. Going to worship weekly helps reorient our hearts and our minds about what is the real story we're believing. Um, eating good food, like uh, enjoying nature. These are the sorts of things that actually will restore us instead of feeling like, okay, God, check my email every five minutes to see what I'm missing. Okay, so I just made a quick delight list. Blanket forts, sweet tarts, doing handstands in the pool, walking the beach, and playing softball. None of which I really do anymore, but all of which delight me. Oh, that's great. So I'm going to definitely, yeah, I'm doing that. I have grandkids. I could totally be making blanket forts with the total total excuse of blaming it on someone else. Okay, so, um, yeah, again, we're talking with Ashley Hales. The new book is A Spacious Life. Trading hustle and hurry for the goodness of limits. Um, I want to. Um, I want to. You talk about delight as being like an invitation. It's a powerful invitation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. You know, I think all of our limits are invitations to knowing God, and mm. you know, some of those some of those limits, like rest, might be like, oh, that sounds amazing. Delight might be a little bit harder. And maybe, you know, abiding with Jesus through pain and loss is even harder. But, you know, I think these sorts of things school us in what does it look like to have that received identity as a child of God. So delight, particularly, you know, it's it's secure children who play, right? It's not a stoic, productive adults who tend, who tend to play. And really, the practice of delight, even though it might feel awkward because we're used to being productive and very serious as adults. Um, helps us to really re-remember who we are, that we are children and that we don't keep the world spinning and that we get to actually enjoy the beauty, truth, and goodness of the created order. And so delight is an invitation to be God's child. Um, just like I was always saying earlier, our, you know, Jesus being God's son, who he was in, he was delighted in by God the Father enabled him then to delight in other people and to enjoy and slow down. So I think delight is just something that we can tend to be, it's not valued in our society and we can tend to push it off, but it's something that kind of reschools us as fully orbed human beings instead of just productive machines. So Ashley, it's pretty early on that as North Americans, we associate productivity with value. Um, but mm-hmm. you just you just made a really important value statement about how God values us and who we are as valuable because of God's view of us and the value God places mm-hmm. on us. You know, help me in a conversation with a person who really does see herself as only valuable because of what she produces, and when and mm-hmm. when that production cycle runs out, like, right? Because at some point mm-hmm. you reach the stage mm-hmm. of life where, frankly, the world doesn't care how much you produce. You've been set aside and displaced by the next generation of, you know, faster, right. smarter models, right? So right, just right. just help, help me talk with that friend right mm-hmm. now. You know, I would just try to continually um, speak truth, like the same way I, I would do to my child and, you know, in some ways of being a victim of injustice in middle school, you know, or something where, mm-hmm. um, you know, life is hard and it doesn't make sense and it's unfair and, you know, people are unkind and what do we do with that? Um, you know, and so even with my son the other day, we were just saying like, you have immense worth 
because you are God's child and we are your parents and we love you. And I know that whatever that person said stings um, in the same way that I know that it stings and hurts, you know, to validate that feeling of this sense of there's someone younger, faster, better, stronger uh, than you. Um, but ultimately your identity and your worth is so tied up in the perfection of Jesus and that Jesus has met that. He has met the demands of the law on our behalf. And so when God, the father looks at you, you are like wearing the robe of perfection that Jesus has, and he sees you and he delights in you. And it's, it's so beautiful, right? Like the velveteen rabbit to be cared for, for who you are and not because you are the fluffiest and prettiest. Um, but really to get that like deep in our souls, it takes a lot of years, I think, of walking with God, of pressing into the word, of being with a multi-generational, multi-ethnic community um, called the church that begins to actually take on the values of God rather than the values of the world. So it's a slow process. Um, but, you know, we can always we can always start that process and always speak life into other people and speak words of scripture over them to remind them that who they are in Christ is really what matters, you know, and as we're often feeling our limits, it's as we press in and know that we have a God who will never leave us, who will go through the valley of the shadow of death with us, that we know that we are never alone. I felt like you were um, reading my mail when you described the following (laughs) script. This is a quote. The hurried life is ordering my day according to deadlines and other expectations of me instead of vulnerably giving myself to the moment at hand, the task at hand, the person at hand. It happens bit by bit without us even realizing this is the script we're following. Mm -hmm. Preach it, girl, Mm -hmm. because that is where (laughs) we're living. It is. It is. It's just so easy to just take up that script and run with it because we don't feel like we have anything else. But then when we live that script, we find we're like on those moving walkways at the airport that you can't really get off. And there's just always Mm -hmm. another one, you know, further down the road. Well, Um, and if you turn around and try to go the other way, like you're (laughs) going to be run over because there's other people moving in, you know, like they want to move in the direction of the walkway. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. All right. And, this is yeah. so good. It's such a gift. <laughs> this invitation is such a gift. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been I've just been so grateful. Folks have just called it like a breath of fresh air and to feel that it, it is helping them like balm for a weary soul. And I'm just so pleased that a space of life has met people, especially after a global pandemic where we really are just so clear about our own fragility. Yeah, we so need it. So thank you so much. The book is A Spacious Life, Trading Hustle and Hurry for the Goodness of Limits. Ashley Hales is the author. Ashley, thank you so very much. Genuinely appreciate your time with us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. We'll be right back. copies to give away. I forgot to say it. Uh, If you would like to enter the drawing for one of the copies of Ashley Hale's book, A Spacious Life, you know the drill. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, our friends over at Lifeway have supplied us, or InterVarsity, excuse me, have supplied us with copies of Ashley Hale's book, A Spacious Life. Text the word book to 877-933-2484.
Uh, yeah, if rush and hurry are just pressing in upon you and you want a little help figuring out how to how do you create some space? Yep, this is a gracious invitation into living within the limits, uh, the gracious limits, the joyful limits um, of a life lived in the context of who God is. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh, I got another minute. Look at me. I have a whole minute, Paul. <gasps> All you right. Do. So letter writing. Let me circle back to that. Um, and thank you to those of you who uh, texted in during this hour and said, yeah, I love to write letters. Um, hey, let me encourage you. If you are a letter writer and love to write letters, find a kid in your church or in your community with whom you could become a pen pal. It doesn't have to necessarily be in your church. Maybe it could be halfway across the country or even around the world. But find a kid that you could be a pen pal with. Kids actually love to get mail. I don't know if you know that about them, but they love to get mail. And so um, write them letters where you're asking them a question. Maybe you're telling them a story. Uh, and, you know, obviously verify with their parents that this is a cool thing to do. But kids love to get letters and love to read letters and love to write back. So there you go. Get a, get a pen pal who's a kid and let's cultivate in the next generation the love of letter writing. Have a great day. God bless. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.